Before we start the show today, I just want to remind you that we are now producing new bonus content and a weekly wrap-up show for everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash amped up and for as little as $5 a month, you'll get two new bonus videos and bonus shows with me and my producer Rob a week. Thanks again for supporting the podcast and enjoy today's show. Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Brianna Joy Gray. Brianna is the co-host of the Bad Faith Podcast, a contributing editor of Current Affairs Magazine, and the former National Press Secretary of Bernie Sanders. Brianna, welcome to Amped Up. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And this is, this is our last show of the season. Oh. Uh, so in the words of the great Vanessa Williams, we saved the best for last. <laughs> well, I'm honored on, on both counts. Uh, before we talk about what everyone in the progressive movement is talking about, the force the vote campaign, I first want to get your reaction to the fact that our government is only giving the people a one-time $600 check in the latest COVID bill, despite the fact that millions of Americans are up to $5,000 behind in rents, bills, utilities, 40 million Americans are facing eviction, and 50 million Americans are facing food insecurity. I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge wasn't even this selfish, greedy, and narcissistic. Why are so many politicians in Washington okay with allowing this many people in our country to suffer? And how should the people respond to being thrown breadcrumbs instead of being provided a real relief bill from their government, as every other major developed nation in the world was able to do for its citizens? Yeah, you know what's funny is, you know, this is not the force of vote question, but the answer to this question is very similar to the issues at play in the force of vote conversation. conversation which is this. In the U.S., unlike many other countries in the world, we are very timid about striking. We have really Mm. depressed organized labor for reasons that aren't, you know, necessarily the fault of individuals, but the active efforts of the corporate party system to depress labor rights over the course of the last 40, 50 years. And we are living with the consequences of that. Our elected officials on both sides of the aisle know that there's not going to be any real kind of pressure campaign or accountability mechanism, no matter what they do. Um, At the end of the day, even the progressive members of Congress who have fought for us in the past and are not the same as the corporate members of Congress do end up, for the most part, with the exception of, uh, you know, Rashida Tlaib and um, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Yep, those went are the ahead, only two who ahead, voted against it. Yeah, went, went ahead and, and supported it. So it, the question, I think, is, is less, why does this happen? But it's how could it not happen when there's absolutely no accountability mechanism and we're all just so used to and so cowed and so beaten down into accepting crumbs. There, mm. There's no real leadership that people can turn to, even if they were willing to get into the streets, even if they were willing to agitate. Um to lead the charge and everyone remains dispersed. Our left commentariat talks more about how hard it is to organize than supporting organizing with the platforms that they have. Um, And it can be really demoralizing, but I will say, I don't think it's impossible to turn that around now that we've identified a problem, you know, in many ways, the fact that we are in such a, um, uh, crisis. The fact that we are at, at such a low point in this country 
means that if there's any silver lining, there's potentially some opportunity to use the um, panic and fear and desperation that people are experiencing and leverage that to something positive. We just have to be concerted and considered in our efforts and, um, you know, make sure that we're not too cynical as we approach what is a really serious problem, but not something that we haven't faced before in our history and that we haven't collect collectively been able to overcome. Yeah, I, I think that this is the moment. If not now, when? Right? right. This is the moment to galvanize. This is the moment to fight back against this corrupt system. Yeah. This is the moment to, you know, rally with your neighbors and people in your community and get involved in, in organizations outside of these two corporate parties that, that, that want to stand for justice and dignity for all people. Because we are not seeing any justice or in, any dignity from, from neither of these corporate parties. And for me, it's like if 2020 didn't radicalize you, were you really paying attention? Right. Like if this if this moment and, and watching how both of these corporate parties have responded to, to the pandemic by shoveling trillions of dollars to their corporate donors yes. and abandoning the American people who can barely keep their heads above water. If this moment didn't wake you up and make you realize that neither of these parties care about the people, then I don't know what moment would. Yeah. You know, there, there are people who will listen and say, OK, well, there's differences. You know, I don't think that you know, the squad or even maybe somebody, somebody like Nancy Pelosi, I don't think that they don't care. Um, you know, how can you say that? They're obviously so much better than, you know, Mitch McConnell or whomever. And I think that both both ideas can coincide and in, 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 in be in your head at the same time, right? It can be true that there are relative differences all across the spectrum among our elected representatives. It can also be true that because regardless of what their intentions are, whether or not they're coming to this in good faith or bad faith, that the effect is that there is no pressure to force them to do what we all know the overwhelming majority of their constituents want. And we have to stop asking the question, is this person good or bad? Is this person a real one or are they fake or imposer? The question is, what can we do to make them do what they swore they would when they ran for office? What can we do to hold them accountable? There's a lot of talk on the left about grass, you know, um, grassroots movements and bottom-up organizing. And there are so many people who are out there doing it. But there's a disconnect between the language and this kind of futility in the way that we talk about organizing and how difficult it is and actually supporting those movements. You know, there are a lot of people who've reached out to me, you know, about force the vote who have said, okay, well, you know, my, my, um, chapter head doesn't want to pursue this. We're not being allowed to post about force the vote in our DSA message groups, you know, on our DSA Facebook group. Um, I'm not getting response from the leadership of, um, uh, PNHP, uh, partner partnership, uh, it's such a weird acronym, but the National Physicians uh, Partnership Group about uh, Medicare for All, you know. And so I spent my morning trying to reach out to people. I, I was given some contacts and names. I, I don't really know. I'm not an organizer. I don't know what to do either. But I know that I can use my platform to try to give people a forum to vet ideas, uh, formed so that people can organize and be at the same place at the same time who can organize um, phone banks and start calling up our representatives who would be likely no votes on Medicare for All, call up representatives that are co-sponsors of Medicare for All and ask why they don't 
agree to force a vote, call up members of the squad who ran on the idea of ousting Nancy Pelosi and who have committed to the idea that leadership needs to change, but are unwilling to do what is actually in their power to strip her of the speakership in this moment. Yeah, that's right. And so let's kind of dive in here and talk about the force the vote campaign. Jimmy Dore and the movement for People's Party and many others in the movement like yourself have spearheaded this effort to call on AOC and 14 other progressives in the House to withhold their vote for Speaker Pelosi until she brings Medicare for all to a floor vote. In the past three days alone, over 25,000 people have signed the petition and joined the campaign to force the vote. Brianna, you have been one of the most prominent voices in making the case, quite compellingly, I must add. Better for worse. R.I.P. my mentions. The vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rest in peace, all of our mentions. Uh, but in one of the things that I've noticed in kind of just watching the conversation unfold over the past two weeks is that a lot of the, de- the detractors to the campaign, you know, are trying to make this about the personalities involved yes. instead of about principle and about policy. Yes. This is not about Jimmy Dore or AOC. This is about Medicare for all and fighting for every single person in this country to have guaranteed health care like the rest of the developed world. Yeah. Something Nancy Pelosi and corporate Democrats refuse to do because they'd rather protect the giant insurance companies who are one of their biggest donors. And to the detractors who are saying that you know, Jimmy Dore is too loud and angry. If this isn't the moment to be loud and angry, then I don't know what, you know, what moment is. As we're seeing 14 million Americans are losing their health, their health care during a pandemic. Right. And our government is shoveling trillions of dollars to their corporate donors and letting the people suffer. Right. Brianna, are the people who are more focused on Jimmy Dore's personality missing the entire point of this campaign? And what do you see as the key advantages to making this push right now to force the vote on Medicare for all? Yeah, I mean, to, to I'll take your second, your second uh, question first. Um, the key advantages are this. To your point, we are at a crisis point. Um, I think we're, not, we're now over 15 million people who have lost their employer-based health care insurance after a, a primary campaign in which pretty much every candidate uh, other than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, argue that there were benefits to maintaining a an employer-based system. If you like your health care, you can keep it. Well, guess what? For 15 million Americans, that is quite obviously not true. At the same time, because of the COVID crisis, it's obvious that Democrats are under pressure to signal that health care is a human right. They understand that that is a very popular idea among their constituents. That's why you see Joe Biden tweeting, Healthcare is a human right, even though during the campaign, he said he would veto Medicare for all, even if it were to pass the House and the Senate. It's why you see John Ossoff trying desperately to win a Senate seat in Georgia, tweeting healthcare is a human right, even though a week or two before he gave an interview, very declaratively saying that he does not support Medicare for all. That's why when Kamala Harris tweeted uh, over the course of the summer, uh, hey, everybody who gets COVID should have their treatment um paid for. It's uh, it's inhumane for that not to happen. And I quote tweeted saying, yes, totally. But also why is that different from insulin, uh, people who have diabetes or cancer, the entire internet exploded because God forbid you expose the inconsistencies in the rhetoric as pure moral posturing, as opposed to a genuine commitment to the underlying principle that healthcare is in fact I remember that moment. They were so like just, and the rabid responses they gave you, it was just, and the hateful things they said for you simply pointing out a very correct argument and, and a moral position. Right. 
So I think and a consistent position. <laughs> right. So I think that part of what was so powerful about kind of Bernie's approach approach in the campaign was that he did run on those kind of declarative moral statements, which are very difficult to argue with. And that's why I think at this moment, given that Americans in, are in such crisis and the the counter arguments that are usually that usually come from corporate Democrats, the the healthcare for all who want it kind of arguments are so plainly empty, right? They they're not they don't work so well anymore. That this is the moment to really push. And if not now, how can you imagine a better moment? Now, in addition, people keep saying the left doesn't really have power. The left doesn't have power. We don't have the vote. So why why force a floor vote? Now, for one. I argued, and I think Jimmy Jimmy Dore has now also embraced this, there are many other asks that can and should be appended to a floor vote. For example, David Sirota has suggested that we demand that Richard Neal, head of the Ways and Means Committee, should be removed from that position because he is an anti-Medicare for all zealot um, and would thwart any um, efforts to pursue it. Uh, and that's an important committee that will allow us to provide you know funding for this kind of a thing. Additionally, uh, he suggested that we should get rid of PAYGO, which is something that AOC has also said is on her leverage agenda. Great. I don't think there are a whole suite of people who are pretending as though the force the vote campaign is limited to purely wanting to um, force the floor vote. I think it is smart to bundle things together. But what is important about the floor vote aspect of it is that it directly implicates Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi is one of the least liked politicians in America, Three quarters of Americans think that she should step down. And if part of this is about theater and attracting attention to this issue and forcing Democrats to defend their position on Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic, then using Nancy Pelosi as a lightning rod is an effective way to garner media attention, if not from sympathetic left um, liberal media outlets, then definitely from right wing outlets who will jump at the opportunity to cover this. And then that will in turn force the hand of the MSNBCs of the world to offer counter-programming. And suddenly we're having a national conversation about why neither party, and but specifically why a Democratic-controlled House is unwilling to support Medicare for All when 88% of Democrats support it, not to mention nearly 50% of Republicans. Yeah. And and a lot of the people who said that they agree with force the vote, the force the vote campaign in theory, uh, they'll they'll push back and say, but this is just not the right time for this kind of aggressive strategy. But again, <laughs> like when there's this many people who are suffering, isn't the only strategy to stand on your principles and the courage of your convictions and fight like hell against the corporatist politicians like Nancy Pelosi who are standing in the way of progress? Yes. Moreover, we don't. Th- this opportunity to hold Nancy speakerships sh- speakership hostage is only here because the Democrats such a, have such a narrow margin in the House, right? Be- because we have so few votes more than the Republicans have, that's what enables a small cohort of progressive. And that's all we have, right? As a small cohort of progressives. That's what enables them to have the power to make or break Nancy Pelosi's speakership, to, to really wrest the gavel from her hands. Now, it is hist- historically likely that we will actually lose the House in the next cycle. Um, because we tend to lose seats under Democratic presidents. And given how milk toast um, and, uh, you know, 
Joe Biden is and how he has run and will legislate on nothing will fundamentally change. It's unlikely that he's <laughs> willing is going to galvanize some huge upswing of support that's going to rally people to the polls in two years. I could be wrong, and I hope I am wrong, but that's what we're looking at. So the idea that this opportunity is going to come around again in two years or perhaps even in four years is really short-sighted. Meanwhile, 68,000 people die a year from a lack of health care coverage, and that was before a global pandemic. And when so, I've noticed when some of these pundits harp on, uh, you know, a more cautious strategy, what they overlook is progressives are letting the corporatists control the narrative and dictate the party's strategy. Progressives are content to just play the game on Pelosi and the establishment's terms, but Pelosi and the neoliberal establishment's terms, you know, are not are, are not playing a game that is even trying to advance the people's interests. Right. They're playing a game that is trying to advance their corporate donors' interests. So if we continue to just accept things on their terms, then nothing will change in this country right. because Nancy Pelosi's terms are the failed status quo. Right. At some point, if you want to actually change things and win a battle, then you have to get in the arena and fight. Yeah. And right now, as you've said, during this pandemic, when millions of Americans are losing their health insurance, it is the perfect time to fight for Medicare for all. Why are progressives so afraid to bring the fight to Pelosi and the neoliberal establishment, especially considering that progressives have the people on their side? 88% yeah. of Democrats, 70% of all Americans support Medicare for all. Isn't it time for progressives to fight, bad, to fight these battles on our terms and take it to the establishment who just want to maintain the status quo? Yeah, if I can um, just be a little bit of an armchair psychologist for a second, and I mean this with nothing but um, compassion because I'm making this assessment based on my own psychology as well. I'm trying to empathize and understand based on my own feelings of um, demoralization following you know, the end of the Bernie campaign, et cetera. I think that a lot of folks on the left are really tired of losing. And I think that they have been... They, they feel almost embarrassed about the optimism that they allowed themselves to feel at, a, at the zenith of Bernie's 2020 campaign. Um, almost embarrassed that we thought after Nevada, oh, we could really do this. Um, and there, I think, and maybe this isn't fair, and, and this is just, a, yeah, my own conjecture, and I don't want to I mean to put this on anybody in particular. People, I could be wrong. But it it, it's a kind of vulnerability to keep putting yourself out there after you keep getting knocked down so many times. And it's not that I'm sitting here saying, I know for a fact that force the vote is going to have, you know, the kind of galvanizing movement, galvanizing effects that I hope it does. And a year from now, we're going to pass Medicare for all, you know, that that's not what I'm saying. I don't know that it will work. I don't, no one can know that any political strategy is going to work. Bernie didn't know that he could win when he filed his paperwork for 2020 and certainly didn't think he was going to win when he filed his paperwork in 2016. You know, none of us know, you know, when, when, when young black kids in the 1950s practiced their sit-in, sitting at um, lunch counters, right. And practiced with their peers having insults throw, uh, hurled at them and food thrown at them and people spitting in their face. They practiced because they knew the kind of opposition that they were going to face when they actually went and did it in the real thing and practiced not flinching, practiced not reacting. They didn't know what effect it was going to have. They couldn't see the Civil Rights Act on the horizon. They were living in a deeply segregated country that had been living under Jim Crow laws for, for longer than their parents had been alive. And 
the opposition to it, the popularity of integration was so much lower <laughs> than the popularity of something like Medicare for all. And yet they still tried because it was a moral imperative. And, you know, Kyle Kalinske said this on Bad Faith um, in yesterday's episode. You know, he said, I might be wrong. People might be mad at me for this, but I don't think it's any less a moral imperative to guarantee people um, health care, especially in a pandemic. Sometimes I think this can become an abstraction and we can forget how many people are crowdsourcing healthcare options on GoFundMes and how many kids are having to pay 10 times as much for their insulin as they would in the country to our north simply because their government, at, forced by the mo movements from their people, mind you, not just altruistically, but they were able to force their government into taking on the responsibility of setting up a system that enabled them to all get free at point of service care. You know, we are the only country in the industrialized world that has this system. And yet we're constantly made to feel like asking for the bare minimum is some radical uh, thing. Now, the, rea the, the, the main point of my argument that I think has really been underengaged with is that we don't need to convince more people. This isn't an issue of, gosh, we just got to keep, you know, you know, going out to the America and convincing them on Medicare for all. People are convinced. That's not the issue. The issue is, why is it that if 88% of Democratic voters support this issue, barely 50% of House Democrats support this issue in our most representative chamber of, of, of Congress? And the answer to that is there's a lack of accountability. There's a lack of accountability from the people and there's a lack of accountability from the media. So how do you change that? Because the corporate media is never going to stop echoing right-wing talking points about Medicare for all or failing to question politicians about why they, their policies don't reflect the interest of their community. So we have to figure out, yes, how to do performative stunts, performative stunts like the March on Washington, performative stunts like lunch counter sit-ins, performative stunts like marching across Edmund Pettus Bridge right? You can call these performative, you can use dismissive language to characterize them, but it, it's movement activity around issues that galvanize the public that force change. And I don't think that we as a community on the left should ignore the natural excitement that is generated by the idea that Nancy Pelosi, who in so many ways is the figurehead of obstruction and in, in, in among Democrats in Congress, that we have real actual power here to oust her from her position as Speaker of the House, whether or not she gives us anything. I think the best counter argument to this plan is, hey, let's just oust Nancy Pelosi and not ask for anything. Let's just oust her, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, there's there's a good argument for that. But what there isn't there's a good a argument great, for is doing nothing. There's a great argument for it. I mean, I don't even I don't even know how a true progressive votes for someone like Nancy Pelosi right now. Let's not forget that the White House made her a deal before the election that included $1,200 yes. uh, one-time checks, and it also included a $400 uh, enhanced unemployment. Well, what did we end up getting? $600 checks and $300 yeah, enhanced unemployment. Yeah, she called that half a loaf. She, yeah, she messed up the entire negotiations for us. And, and again, she has been obstructing and standing in the way of the bold progressive change that we need to heal this nation for decades. Yes. And she has been governing and keeping that the Democratic caucus in line with the corporate donors who fund the DNC and fund these moderate politicians. And, you know, I like what you said earlier about, you know, you know, that the the sit-ins in the 50s and, and how, you know, look, 
Anyone who challenges power, anyone who fights back against this corrupt system and against these corrupt politicians, of course the system's going to fight back against you, right? Of course, anyone who shakes the table, they're going to fight back. But what does that mean? Does that mean we just don't shake the table? No, you got to do just, comms. We, we, you got to right? do comms. Like, well, As a comms professional, I also just want to say, there's a lot of talk that says, well, the media is going to spin it like this. Well, of course, that's their job. It's our job to spin it differently. And what we are yes. trying to create are the conditions that give us maximum spin. You know, we need to create the condition. We need to get a line of people who have, have health problems and don't have health care. We have millions of people who have lost their health care and you can't get a few hundred of them with signs protesting in front of Nancy Pelosi's office, protesting in front of Congress. You know, we need to create the conditions that make it more difficult for the media to cast a negative light on this movement the same way that millions of people across the country and the world took to the streets over the killing of George Floyd over the summer. You know, it was difficult. Eventually they tried and they focused on, quote unquote, you know, violence, you know, what they mean is property damage, to try to, to try to turn public opinion. But it was very difficult for the media to shut out the reality of that protest or to prevent it from garnering garnering real sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement. And these opportunities exist with respect to Medicare for all. And now is the best moment for it. And also courage is contagious. Yeah. So the more we do, we build and the more people get out there and see that, that, that you can fight back against this corrupt system, that it is the righteous thing to do, that it is the moral thing to do, to not accept crumbs from your government, to demand you know, guaranteed healthcare for everyone in this country and to get out there and fight for it. I think, you know, if the lesson you learned from, from Bernie Sanders campaign is that we should be more passive, <laughs> you learn the wrong lesson, Yeah, you know, because this, the establishment is not here to play patty cakes with the left and with progressives. They're here to, to continue to govern for the 1% and to govern for their corporate donors, and they don't give a crap about us. The only thing they care about is going in front of a camera and feeding the people these empty platitudes so that, you know, of hope and change yeah. so they can kind of distract them from the fact that, like, the establishment's not offering any hope and change. Yeah. They're not giving you anything. In fact, the only they said thing nothing will fundamentally change. They, they, Joe yeah. Biden, it was the most honest thing he ever said, yeah. told a room full of rich donors in the primary that nothing would fundamentally change. So don't worry, you Wall Street, you can trust me. You can elect me. And so when we know that that's the case, I think we need more courage in our movement. Yeah. We need to stop backing down from the corruption. Stop backing down from these politicians who have taken so much from the people and start fighting for for what we deserve and for what we are worth. I, I think that for me is what excites me most about this campaign is since you know the Bernie campaign, we have been deflated. Yeah. Well, let's get let's let's rally behind this. Let's get excited about fighting for everyone in this country to have health care. And I love what you said about bringing this me this this issue to the media because that's just going to put more pressure on these politicians. Yes, you know, and that's going to force a national debate over the progressive movement's signature cause, yes. which is Medicare for all, which as we've said, the people are already on our side. They're already on our side. I want to not pretend that there aren't, you know, arguments being made against this. And I want to address some of them, you know, to the extent that there are people who are probably thinking, okay, but what about this? And what about this? And one of the, I think, good faith um, questions of I mean, pushback that I, you know, I've gotten is, you know, what if we lose? Doesn't this, this is in the strip, the squad of their political capital. 
you know, isn't there some value to them playing kind of an inside game and trying to get committee appointments and trying to influence Congress from the inside? Isn't there something that something to be said for just solely trying to keep winning progressive seats? The size of the squad doubled in the course of the last election. Shouldn't we just keep on to keep on? So to the latter part, I don't think that we can wait however many years it would take for us to get enough squad members in the House. I think it's wonderful that we have as many as we do. But it's not, um, I don't think it's ethical to say we're going to basically postpone Medicare for all until we manage to get, you know, half of the, the, or or all, it would take all, (laughs) all of the Democrats in the House since it's basically a 50-50 split now um, as squad members. I I think it's going to require a lot more pressure than that. We're going to have to make the people who don't support Medicare for all feel accountable. In addition, we just saw what the inside game gets you. AOC, who was gunning for this um, ENC committee seat, was downvoted overwhelmingly um, after having trying after having you know tried to play nice. And so, Nancy Pelosi, no one blinks an eye when she punishes the squad for being who they are, for speaking out, for believing what they believe in, for fighting for the interests of their constituents. I think it's time for the left to consider punishing Nancy Pelosi in return, because this is one of the few moments that they could literally do so. They could literally hold her over the proverbial barrel and hold her accountable and show that there are consequences for her playing games with with progressives. Nancy Pelosi, the the DCCC, I'm sure you remember, back when AOC first won, established a rule that any vendors, you know, stage sets, lighting, food, any kind of vendor that supports a campaign that worked for a Democratic candidate primarying an incumbent would be blacklisted. Yep. Blacklisted. Blacklisted. So the party is perfectly willing to protect their incumbents and mount primary challenges hypocritically against um, progressives. progressives, Yep. Right. Uh, And yet, there's no punishment the other way. And and to the extent that there's negative backlash, negative press, again, it's our job to reframe the narrative and fight back with our own press and media establishment, right? And and I'd like to jump in. If you know, if your whole the, the here's the issue I have is if your whole theory of the case is that, you know, we can change the system from within and change the the Democratic Party from the inside, if that's your whole theory of the case, well, in order to change the system from within, you have to actually start pressuring the establishment. You can't just sit back and let the establishment dictate everything because we know, like I said earlier, the game they play is for their corporate donors. So if you want to change the system from within, yes, it's great. We're, We're you, you add a few more squad members every cycle, but those squad members have to start using their power coming together and fighting back against the corrupt establishment. You know, I would, ju- I would just tell people that, look, AOC and the squad have some of the biggest platforms yes. in all of politics, and they did not get their platforms from the corrupt establishment. AOC and the squad got their platforms from the people in their district and from the progressive movement by campaigning on Medicare for all. So I think it is very reasonable to ask AOC, uh, you know, to to call, to use her platform to call out this corruption that we're seeing within the Democratic Party. And I would say that, you know, if you are truly a progressive. You can't just because I think AOC does a great job of calling out the corruption in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be a true progressive leader, you can't just call out 
you know, the Republicans who've been corrupted by corporate money and then look the other way when Democrats are also corrupted by corporate money. Absolutely. If you want to be a true progressive, you've got to call out all the politicians who've been corrupted by corporate money. And so I don't, you know, I don't yell at AOC. I'm just simply asking her, join us, fight with us, use your massive platform to, to push for Medicare for all during a pandemic and to put some pressure on Pelosi and these corporate Democrats who right now, like you just said, are, are actively working against you, AOC. They just knocked you off a committee seat. And I think when we start, if AOC did that, it will just galvanize the movement even more and it will show these corporatists in there who are way too comfortable who really has the power in this country. Because right now the corporations have all the power. And, and what we need to show these politicians is, no, it's the people. We have the power. Yes. And that's why someone like AOC getting involved with you know, a force the vote campaign and withholding her vote from Speaker Pelosi, it would make a loud statement yeah. to show that the progressive movement is not backing down to this corruption, that no more will the movement accept, you know, a, a Democratic Party that just cowers to corporate power and cowers to Wall Street and, and these in these giant corporations while the working class, you know, is is falling further and further behind. Yeah. And we're seeing more and more wealth being concentrated into the hands of so few. Yeah, I think your point about emph emphasizing corruption is a really important one because I do think, you know, there are a lot of Democrats, well-meaning, you know, good faith Democrats who believe that, you know, the reason that we can't have Medicare for all is because it's electoral kryptonite, right? They're like, well, there must be some reason all these Democrats are voting against it. Um, you know, Joe Biden got elected, so that must mean that people don't really like Medicare for all or they don't really care about it and da 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 but we saw that the overwhelming majority of Biden voters voted for Biden because they wanted to beat Trump. And the media had drilled the drilled, drilled the message into everyone's head that Joe Biden was the best able to do so. Whether or not that was true, that's what people believed. Overwhelming majorities of Biden voters supported Medicare for all. And significant minorities of Biden voters actually thought that he supported it. And they weren't stupid. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't a silly mistake to make when you have, you know, Boston Herald articles saying that Joe Biden supports Medicare for all, that he's an ally to Medicare for all. When you have Joe Biden tweeting, healthcare is a human right. When you have pundits going on TV and saying, on MSNBC saying, well, you know, he'll probably support it eventually. It's, it's part of his long-term plan. It is not part of his long-term plan. Joe Biden <laughs> was chosen by corporate America to be the candidate to beat Bernie Sanders precisely because he has a commitment to the private healthcare system. He took more money from private uh, from the private healthcare system and from the pharmaceutical industry than any other candidate in the 2020 primary. His biggest supporters including Jim Clyburn who arguably handed him the victory by or, or saved him from defeat after a string of embarrassing primary losses in the first three states um, by helping him to win South Carolina with that endorsement. Jim Clyburn takes more money from the, from the pharmaceutical industry than any other person in Congress, in Congress, mm -hmm. both chambers in Congress. So there is a relationship between a failure to support this policy and where people are getting their campaign contributions. And that relationship is never commented on by the media. And I think that that, that issue in never. particular needs to be foregrounded in the context of this floor vote and this argument. I don't care if they only get 15 minutes of testimony. If part of that t 15 minutes is calling out Congress people by name who, with the dollar amount that they take from these industries and their, their 
positions on this policy, that would be an incredibly clarifying moment for this country, especially if they follow up with a push on their social medias, which to your point, are enormously far reaching and influential. Yeah. And let's not forget that in 2020, Wall Street gave more money to Joe, Bi to Joe Biden and the Democrats than it gave to Donald Trump and the Republicans. Mm. You know, that just shows you that, you know, this idea that somehow it's just the Republicans who are corrupted yeah. by corporate money. It's just not it's not based on facts. It's not based in reality. Mm -hmm. And I have a, I will have a whole section. You know, I want to talk about uh, corporate PAC money and how it has corrupted our politics, because that is a big piece of all of this. And it's a big piece of this uh, force the vote pressure campaign, you know. The reason we don't have Medicare for all in this country is that both parties are owned by giant insurance companies. The reason we don't have a Green New Deal is both parties are owned by big oil companies. Yeah. The reason we don't have world peace is both parties are owned by the military industrial complex. That's right. And like I just said, what really gets me is that so many liberals and moderate Democrats will call out Republicans for being corrupted by corporate money, but then give Democrats who have also been corrupted by corporate money a free pass. A free pass. And accuse oh, you and of being like some kind of double A, a Trump agent or Russian spy or, some or Russian something. Bot. Yes, for some saying Russian the bot. obvious. Yeah. Totally. And and like we like you've said, the whole reason Pelosi and House Democrats don't want to vote on Medicare for all is because the majority of them are bought and paid for by these big, you know, giant insurance companies. So my question for you, Bree, is why is there this double standard where Democrats get away with being corrupted by corporate money? And do you see the force the vote campaign as a tool to reveal to a broader audience just how many Democrats put their corporate donors over the basic needs of the American people? Because it reminds me of something I heard a long time ago, you know, we can't heal what we don't reveal. Mm. And sunshine is the best disinfectant mm. to all this corruption. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that should be a central aspect of this push and it could have real revelatory possibilities. You know, why it is that so many D Democrats um, are reluctant to call out their own, it's a really interesting question. And I've been thinking about it a lot. I, you know, I've been thinking about doing some writing on this area. You know, what makes a leftist, what makes a liberal? I've been thinking about my own political evolution as someone who, you know, very strongly supported Barack Obama in 2008 and, you know, did so, so a little more suspiciously in 2012 and then became very demoralized over the course of his second term because what did so many of us say? Well, he's under a lot of pressure. He's the first black president, but in his second term, he he's term limited, so he can really fight for us. He can really do what his principles dictate. And none of that materialized. And then it was, well, after he's out of office, he can say what he really means and be an advocate for all of these issues. And that never materialized. And now he, we both know what a for, uh, central role he played in the 2020 election, you know, and getting the other uh, corporate candidates to drop out so there could be consolidation around Joe Biden. That's not you know, kind of Bernie hysteria talking. That's like well-reported journalism talking, right? That's reality. That's reality. So three, three days before Super Tuesday <laughs> to clear the lane for Joe Biden. Right. If Biden, if Biden, does, excuse me, if Obama doesn't make that phone call, Bernie wins Super Tuesday. Right, right. You know, I mean, that phone call changed history, not for the better, in my opinion, for right. the worse. Right, So, you know, I, I think it's difficult. I mean, a lot of us, you know, growing up, believe that there, there you know there's two parties there it's a good one and a bad one republicans care want to shrink government and cut cut social programs and hurt the poor and they have all the racists i mean this is i'm talking in generalized stereotypes you know like this is what what happens in the liberal mind's eye and it was my mind's eye as well at a certain point in my life 
and all the bad people are over there and, and they just want to like hoard their money and they have all these excuses of, of why they get to do so. And on the other side, you have Democrats who fight for people of color and fight for the LGBTQIA community and fight for immigrants. And, you know, the, the, the battle lines are really clear. Obviously, I want to be on the good side. And, you know, as we lived through, you know, Bush and, you know, now Trump, it's it's easy to see, to, to, to feel like, given how much bad crap comes out of those people and how sometimes unsettled they are at doing bad things in the world, to believe that the scales are really imbalanced and that Democrats are really significantly better. But look what's happening right now with Joe Biden today. It came out that he is not going to immediately reverse um, Donald Trump's immigration policy, even though he said he was going to do so um, either on day one or first 100 days. He made some commitment that he was going to do it basically post-haste. And he has now retracted on that. Many Latino groups, organizing groups, have been frustrated with him um, since he's won the nomination already. We all heard his leaked tape in which he berated the head of basically every major black civil rights group um, and told them that he, they should basically be grateful because he's appointed, you know, I've done more than anybody else has ever done for you, is almost a verbatim quote, you know. And I'm hoping that these moments will begin to reveal to folks that having a D in office just isn't enough. It could be if we were more willing to hold them accountable. Right. Whether or not Joe Biden is a good person, whether or not Nancy Pelosi is a good person is kind of immaterial. I think that there is a, an amount of pressure that could force Joe Biden to do the right thing, that could force Nancy Pelosi to do the right thing. But if you are willing to vote for them no matter what, to support them no matter what, to say, you know, I understand that folks want to say, don't don't call AOC trash or throw her out. But if you're unwilling to say, AOC, I think you've made a mistake and I want to push you to do the right thing, then you're never going to incentivize her to be the kind of person that she ran as and to be the kind of person, um, you know, she said when she was running, I would rather be a one-term candidate. I want to be held accountable. You have to push politicians because she understood there's a, a thing called institutional creep where the longer you're a part of an institution, the more you think that you can just make it work and you can make certain kinds of compromises. And it has nothing to do with your personal integrity or whether or not you're nice or good or whether I want to have a beer with you. It happens to the best of us. And that's why if we want to support AOC, we need to be willing to push her. And we need to be willing to, you know, ally with her in, in other respects, right? This isn't about That's right. cancellation, but you're not doing anybody any favors, certainly not the most vulnerable people in this country, by saying that you're going to relinquish any and all accountability of the people who are in control of our lives. Yeah, and you bring up some very good points. I've had a similar political journey. I mean, I voted for Obama twice. And, you know, what really woke me up, and I was the same way, you know, my four years ago, my political overview was just very simple was, you know, Democrats are good and Republicans are bad. <laughs> yeah. But when I started to kind of, you know, unpack this political system and kind of look under the hood of the car, if you will, and started to see that, you know, these these Democrats, while the Republican Party is mar is marching the country further and further to the right. The problem we have is Democrats aren't moving further and further to the left. They're actually marching to the right with these right. Republicans Chasing because them. they're working for the same corporations and the same billionaires that the Republicans are working for. And so when I started to realize that everything that happens in Washington, D.C. is being influenced by big money, by corporate money, by the billionaire class. I mean, you can even look at the CARES Act, mm. right, that, that was passed earlier this year. 
didn't have a lot of care for the people, right. but it had a lot of care for, for the billionaire class who've seen their, their net wealth now increase by over a trillion dollars yeah. and had a lot of care for giant corporations. Now, if you dig in the details, you can go look and see on opensecrets.org. Oh, wow. Look, the CARES Act had 1,690 lobbyists working on it. Mm. There were 1,600 lobbyists, corporate lobbyists who worked on the CARES Act. When uh, the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, 4,000 corporate lobbyists descended on Washington, D.C. To, to help write that legislation for the Affordable Care Act. When I found that out, it's like the Affordable Care Act isn't even a, a universal health care system. It left 27 million people uncovered. Right. It left 92 million people underinsured. Right. It is a predatory for-profit health care system that was a giant gift to the insurance companies, but the Democrats went on TV and spouted these platitudes and dressed it up like it was this great thing. Yep. And so for me, what I finally kind of realized is when I saw past all the platitudes, because again, these corporate Democrats like Barack Obama, like Joe Biden, like Hillary Clinton, you know, like Nancy Pelosi, they say the right things. They'll go on CNN and they'll say that health care is a human mm -hmm. right. But then they won't support the policy, Medicare for all, to make healthcare a human right. Okay. Or they'll say that climate change is real, but they won't support a Green New Deal and true climate legislation that we need to actually do something about the climate crisis. Or that they'll say Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. but they won't actually fight to defund the police and shift resources into black and brown communities. Yeah, they'll put a so a cloth. lot of it is rhetoric yeah. and is optics and is just it, is platitudes. Yeah. And I think we're in a moment in history where platitudes isn't enough, you know, platitudes aren't going to stop the climate crisis. Yeah. Platitudes aren't going to stop the racial injustice crisis and the economic inequality crisis. Platitudes aren't going to stop the lack of healthcare crisis and the cost of healthcare crisis. And so we've got massive problems in this country and, and the majority of the Democrats just want to go on TV and spout platitudes and then govern for their corporate donors, just like Republicans are doing. Yep. And what I'm saying is like, that's not enough. And I think what the progressive movement is saying, what people like you are saying and Jimmy Dore is saying is that's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough for you to just talk the talk anymore. We need you to walk the walk and actually fight for policies that are going to lift up the poor, the working class and communities of color. I think your point about platitudes is a really good one. And I think it helps me to understand why there has been so much you know, organic energy around force the vote. I think it's because forcing the vote is kind of platitude proof. You either mm. do it or you don't, you know, the, the rules are there. It only takes 15 ish of you. Uh, we have, you know, technically almost a hundred people in the progressive caucus. If a quarter of them were on board, let's say that some of them are not real progressives, but you know, there's that graphic that's been going around the internet that has a list of the people who it could be who are all, I think, sincerely great people, the best among us in Congress. They have the power. They have the power. Today, they can decide whether or not Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House next year. They can decide. And there's no amount of, I support Medicare for all, but we don't have the votes. I, I believe in this, but we just got to keep organizing. There's no, no. You, do you believe that Nancy Pelosi is an obstacle or not? Now, I, I do want to address one other counter argument. Some people think that if we get rid of Nancy Pelosi, um, she will be replaced by, quote, someone worse. And this is what AOC offered um, in her interview with uh, Jeremy Scahill, my, my former colleague at The Intercept. 
And my question was, okay, help me understand that. Cause I am not going to pretend to know everything about, um, congressional happenings. Tell me why it is that one, who it is you think is going to be the worst and two, why are they the worst? And three, why do you, why do you say as, as many members of the squad have now said, at least, um, Shida Tlaib and, and AOC have both said, why do you think that no one is quote ready to fill in as speaker from the progressive wing of the party? Why is there no one? Because two years ago, when you were running, a lot of what the discourse was about was getting rid of Nancy Pelosi and getting a, a progressive in her place. So what has happened We've over the past two years? We've been talking about getting rid of Nancy Pelosi for four years. Right. So, you know, so what's happened? Is... What? Why has there been no, like, what, what does ready mean? Like, what are we talking about here? And there has been no clarification on this point. And, and you know, Ryan Graham and some other smart folks have said, okay, well, the worst person that everyone's alluding to is Hakeem Jeffries. Okay, putting aside the issue of whether or not Hakeem Jeffries is ideologically worse than Nancy Pelosi, which... It's not at all clear to me, nor has anyone actually explained why. But let's just assume that's the case. What I think is incontrovertible is that Hakeem Jeffries has much less power than Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's yep. power is derived from the fact that she is the best fundraiser in Congress. She has intimate personal relationships with people with money as someone who, how much is she worth? $70 million? $120 million. Oh, excuse me. I didn't mean to undersell her like that. $120 million who comes from an enormously affluent family. And that's how she was able to get her start in politics in the first place. So Hakeem Jeffries, as bad and as powerful relatively as he might be to other members of Congress, is nowhere near as powerful as Nancy Pelosi. And so if the question is, do I want a big baddie like Nancy Pelosi or someone who maybe has a tougher growl but is more ineffective, then give me that person and then we can deal with Hakeem Jeffries when he's there. But you know what? If Hakeem Jeffries ends up succeeding Nancy Pelosi, he will be doing so under the threat of what progressives can do if he doesn't bring them to the bargaining table. He knows that progressives are willing to go kamikaze. <laughs> and, and Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to add, and one thing no one's talking about is that progressives, we don't understand the power that we truly have to continue to build this movement because I think there's no better way to set up progressive challengers in the 2020, uh, 2022 midterms uh, to primary these moderate incumbents than to get these corporate Democrats on the vote voting against Medicare for all. So like this force, the vote is going to bring everything out into the open yes. so the people can see which Democrats truly work for the people and which Democrats work for the corporation. Yes. Right. So this is like this would spur the movement and would create just a massive amount of energy yes. for progressive challengers yes. in 2022. And that's not magical to, thinking, by the way. It's not that we think no, that MSNBC is magically going to cover this, but it gives us the meat to start yes. pitching this narrative. It gives us the grist, the people in progressive media, organizers on the ground, to get, it gives us the language and the moment to galvanize around. And it'll help candidates like Jen Perlman, who will probably run again against Debbie Washburn Schultz, and candidates like David Kim, who almost took out a corporate Democrat here in Los Angeles. I mean, this will galvanize the movement, and so it will bring energy as we as we go into the, the next midterm so we can get rid of some of these kind of corporate Democrats. But I think that is why... Pelosi is so opposed to bringing Medicare for all to a floor vote that because she knows that the majority of her caucus is owned by these insurance companies. And by blocking a Medicare for all floor vote, she's protecting them right. from 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 being exposed and from their corruption being exposed to the public. Right. That's what's really going on here. Yep. Um, I want to shift the conversation a little bit. Um, I want to ask you. 
you know, one thing I see these corporate Democrats do, and and unfortunately they do it really well. Uh, but one of the ways that they 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 thwart progress is is they're always saying, well, no, you know, we need to have party unity. You know, that's always like the line, right? Or stop the circle, cir- cir- the the circling or the circle, the, the circular the firing, firing squad. squad. Yeah, the circle, the, yes, the circular <laughs> firing squad. Yeah. Couldn't get it out. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up, party unity doesn't mean a damn thing. If Democrats continue to be united behind their corporate donors instead of uniting behind the policies that the people need to survive, like Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, a jobs guarantee, and a basic income. So does the progressive movement need to do a better job of communicating to the public that it's not about uniting behind a party, especially a party that has been corrupted by corporate greed, but that it is about uniting behind an agenda for the people and uniting behind policies that deliver dignity and justice to all people like Medicare for all. Absolutely. You know, I think that sometimes we can feel, I'll speak for myself, you know, for a long time I felt kind of like squishy and crunchy and granola and unserious to say, to, 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 to use human rights based language and framework to talk in terms of principles. And there are still a lot of people who will tell you you're being kind of Pollyanna or, you know, unrealistic or like churchy or something. If you, dare to say things that I think we were all taught in school, you know, as, as young kids, intrinsically, we believed and understood and every kind of spiritual or religious teaching (laughs) would tell you to believe somehow we're not allowed to bring that language into the public sphere, even Hmm. as we're in the middle of this ridiculous crisis. Right. And so I I think that that's right. It, It can't be about party. And I think that obviously the corporate media was very, um, negative about Bernie's attacks on, on the establishment, but he did more of that in 2016. And I think that he was, it was successful for a reason. Parties are enormously unpopular. Congress has like rock bottom approval ratings right now. The only people in the world who are defending Nancy Pelosi, it seems are people who have or want MSNBC contracts or some some people on the left who, you know, I'm not going to impugn their motives. I have no idea what's going on. But it almost feels like a lack of imagination or a desire to, you know, not be disappointed again or not be embarrassed by trying and failing, you know, and I have some empathy for that. It's it, it takes a certain kind of courage to keep putting yourself out there when when you have failed. But we are we are trying to win a war, not just a, a battle. And, yeah. we're not gonna... and we're not just trying to win an election. Right. We're trying to win. We're trying to win policies that will actually improve people's lives. Yes. Like there's a difference between I think winning an election, you know, for a party, and actually winning an election for the people. Yes, and I think there's a lot of people who can be galvanized by the idea of organizing outside of a party structure. I think Bernie 2016 proved that. I think the people that I met on the campaign trail who I would go up to them and they would say, "Oh, but I hate Democrats," and I would say, "Oh, I have good news for you." <laughs> <laughs> Bernie's not a Democrat. <laughs> you know, there, right. there's a, there's, there was a real tactical advantage to that, frankly, that the media never identified or recognized. You know, he was the most popular candidate with with independents, and independents are the are the most, um, the 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 largest group number wise in terms of party identification yeah. in, in the country. And I think, and that- the biggest voters. One thing that always drove me crazy is is that. You know, independents are the biggest voting block in the general election, mm. but because the way the primaries are held, yeah. 
right? And out. because a lot of independents are blocked from voting in the primary yeah. in, that, that, in states that have closed primaries, you know, and, they, and the Democratic Party makes, and the DNC make you jump through hoops to vote. And they do that intentionally because the way the Democratic primary is set up, it favors a more corporate, you know, neoliberal candidate like uh, Hillary Clinton or uh, Joe Biden. Uh, but then when you get into the, the general election, when there's more independents, Independents are not like, you know, neoliberals or, or like comfortable liberals. Comfortable liberals seem to be content with the Joe Bidens of the world and the Hillary Clintons. Independents are not. Yeah. And so that puts Democrats at a huge disadvantage when they, you know, they rig their primaries essentially against the most progressive candidate and to favor these more corporatist candidates. And then you get into the general where independents start voting in much bigger numbers than they vote in the primary. And independents don't like corporatists. Right. Yeah, I think it's Part of why there's so much opposition to closed primaries, I, I believe New York just um, switched to open primaries. And I know people like Andrew Yang are out there fighting for ranked choice voting. These are yep. the kinds of reforms that will make it a lot easier for candidates who are decoupled from the corporate power structure to actually win. And I think that in between these kind of specific battles and in between elections, we need to keep the heat up for those kinds of structural fights as well, and including campaign finance reform. You know, I was uh, my, uh, you know, in the kitchen earlier today and my mother was like checking her email and got some emails asking for campaign donations. She's like, I'm, I'm tired of giving all these people these campaign donations, especially now in the middle of this crisis. I can't believe they're still asking for money. We just need a campaign finance reform. So there's caps on how much these people can spend on these elections because it's ridiculous that I'm getting hit up yeah. five times a day by these multimillionaire politicians from my $5 when there are so many people in our own community who are in need. Ranked choice voting in publicly funded elections would change the whole game. Yep. And it would get us out away from this one party oligarchy that we essentially are and move us into a multi-party democracy. Yeah. Uh, like all of Europe is and Canada and other democracies around the world have made it work. You know, we can make it work in America too. It's just the, these corporations uh, have so much power and and have essentially bought both parties. And so both parties continue, as we saw with the latest bailout, they continue to uh, legislate for corporations and they're not legislating for the people. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because it's affected you personally, is you know, we hear constantly from more moderate and establishment Democrats that black women uh, are the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? They'll say it over and over again. But when a black woman like yourself mm. is demanding actual policies that deliver dignity and justice to the black community, to the working class and to the poor, you are no longer the backbone of the party, but instead become public enemy number one. And they're calling you some of the most hateful things, all because you're fighting for policies and asking for a tangible for your vote. Indeed. What has it been like for you to be the target of these attacks? And what does it say about the Democratic Party that it seems to care more about black votes than about black lives? Yeah, I mean, personally, you know, I have my days. This week has been an interesting one. Um, largely because I think it's especially disappointing to have that kind of rhetoric coming from people that you consider to be friends and allies and the division among the left among around this force of vote issue has, um, you know, resulted in some people saying some things that I think are a little ill-advised and very disappointing to me on a personal level, but broadly, you know, what is, if I can put a slightly optimistic spin on it, I think I receive a lot more support than I, and I, then I hear the slings and arrows and there are so many black women. I mean, like all of these, you know, black women leftists, you know, uh, 
Twitter groups <laughs> where they're also like frustrated at how they're invisibilized in the course of this narrative. I mean, the, the antipathy for Kamala Harris, for instance, was so organic. It was not like Bernie bros in the comment section talking about how much they didn't like Kamala Harris. It was her constituents in California who had been victims of her criminal justice policies, who were the first in line hollering as loud as it could on the internet that she was not it that that was not the representational politics that they had signed up for, that substance matters just as much, if not more, than raw representation. Hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm heartened by the, the, the increasing, the growing number of voices of color. I mean, I mean look, look, at, look at what the composition of the squad is. You know, look at how many, it's, you cannot write off the leftist movement as a you know, kind of like whitewashed sort of movement. And I want to, I want to, you know, point to the fact that black men too are in the crosshairs. Look what happened when, you know, I don't agree with every political approach he has or, or, you know, the entirety of his politics, but when Ice Cube simply demanded, Hey, shouldn't we get something for our vote? The black Joe Biden fundamentally cannot win without the black vote. Shouldn't we demand something concrete, something tangible in exchange for it? Um, P Diddy did the same and both were really laughed out of the room, including by a lot of, you know, activists who have a lot of access and power in the activist world, you know, instead of saying, hey, there's some flaws with your program, let's work together to rehabilitate it, to improve it. They were very dismissive and said, you know, why didn't you work with me? Like almost like, how dare you step in line um, as though they're, they were at cross purposes. And, you know, you could use the the platform that someone like that has to try to advance your agenda, but there tends to be all of this kind of absurd infighting. And it's, it's really frustrating. And I think that we should focus less on gatekeeping and having ownership of ideas and kind of self-promotion and think about how to advance the cause. So I have been, I've gotten tired of fighting with people on the internet. I've decided I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, I don't need to convince any leftist YouTube personality to agree with me because ultimately that's not who I'm trying to convince. There are a lot of people who are convinced and I'm trying to set up platforms where people can organize and see what kind of de demonstrations we can put together, what kind of phone banking we can put together. I don't have much in the way of organizing experience, but I know a lot of people do and I'm reaching out to them. I've made phone calls all morning. That's part of why I was late for this. My apologies, Ryan. But I, I don't know what to do, but I'm tired of the the leadership void um, resulting in inaction. That's not, that's not an, an adequate response to me. That's not okay. I can't tolerate yeah. that. So I'm going to try my best and I might fail. I'll likely fail. But I'll feel good in having tried instead of just sitting around being snarky and defeatist on the Internet. Yeah. And I think we need accountability. Like, I just look at it very simply. You can't it is not OK for these establishment Democrats to pander to marginalized communities for votes and then get into power after marginalized communities turn out in record numbers. Right. And then these corporate Democrats get into power and they go from pandering to these marginalized communities to then not doing anything for them and delivering results for them when they get into power. And I just don't think that's acceptable. And I think asking for some, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. The Democratic Party loves to pander to my community. But are they actually helping my the people at the margins in my community? Right. No, because they're not fighting for policies like Medicare for all. Right. You know, and a jobs guarantee and a basic income that would really help LGBTQ right. people. Ending homelessness. Margins. And so trans women are like the number and, one community that experience homelessness in their lifetime. 
and gun violence. And, and so we need some accountability. And I just, when it's so, it frustrates me when the people who are asking for accountability and just asking for simple, tan, you know, just give us something, you know, for our vote, yeah. you know, give us one policy. And then we're just met with this just disdain. And, and, and it just, it shows, you know, it's, it's very much kind of, you know, I think seeing some of these more white centrists try to erase black leftists. Yeah. It's really damaging, and 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 we have to remember, black people have been the, the 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 lifeline of the left. When you look at people like MLK and Malcolm X, and you just look at the Black Panthers, yep. you know, you look through history, they were radicals, yep. they were socialists, they were, were anti capitalists, yep. they were shaking up the status quo, and. And so for the Democratic Party, it seems like the Democratic Party likes to co-opt the, these big social movements and bring them into the tent and then not actually deliver policies for, that the social movements are demanding. And I just think we are, we are at a moment in history where there's so much inequality and so much injustice that it's just not okay anymore for the Democratic Party to do this. If you want, if you, if you're going to say that black women are the backbone of the party, then then deliver policies that help black women right. and that help black people in marginalized communities. And don't just don't expect just, us you know, to turn out votes for you in Georgia. And don't just pander. Us. Yeah. If you're not going to actually fight. Yep. A- 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 amen, brother. <laughs> I couldn't have uh, said it better myself. I wanted to ask you too. Bernie campaigned his heart out for Biden. Yep. As we, as you know, and Biden really did nothing in return, right? Biden made no big policy concessions and he hasn't made one truly progressive cabinet pick. Although you could argue that Deb Holland is, is the most progressive, yep. but the rest of them, you know, he celebrates, yeah, it's such a diverse cabinet. Well, a diverse cabinet of corporatists is still a cabinet of corporatists, Correct. right? And so how, my question is how many more times does the left need to get burned before it stops playing nice with these corporatists. Is it time for progressives to accept who the Democratic Party really is, that it will never put the people over its corporate donors, mm-hmm. and, and, and that it's time to build power for the progressive movement outside of the corporate parties uh, with the People's Party? I am a strong proponent of the People's Party. Look, in 2016, Bernie Sanders supporters overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton. In fact, They supported Hillary Clinton at a higher rate than Hillary Clinton supporters in 2008 voted for Barack Obama, our first black president, right? They towed the line, they bent the knee, and and regardless of that, as a consequence, the next four years they were blamed for Trump's win. Regardless of how true or not it was, for the next four years they were blamed for Trump's win. In 2020, Bernie Sanders hit the campaign trail even harder than he did for Hillary Clinton. He was out there as a 78-year-old man in the middle of a pandemic uh, while Joe Biden was in the basement somewhere. And as a consequence, what happened? To your point, there have been no progressive appointees. In fact, there have been a lot of several appointees that are actively um, antagonistic to Bernie Sanders. He has hired a woman who literally assaulted his campaign manager when he was her subordinate. Near Tandon. Near Tandon. You know, his, his one of his most trusted advisors, uh, Cedric Richmond, who is also an envir- environmental liaison, comes from one of the most polluted districts in America. Seven out of the 10 most polluted air tracts in the country are in his district. That kind of flies in the face of the idea that he is going to be the trust science candidate that cares about climate change and deserved the endorsement of some of the most preeminent climate groups in America. You know, 
he, he couldn't do more, frankly. I mean, I shouldn't say that because certainly he'll try. <laughs> but there's very, you know, it's hard to imagine what more he could do to disrespect progressives, you know, who comprise 30 to 40 percent of the Democratic Party. Well, at the same time, he's made all sorts of overtures to Republicans. Right. Yep. Cindy McCain on the transition team talking about Meg Whitman for, for Secretary of Commerce. You know, these kind of overtures don't go unnoticed by a progressive. So if the question is, you know, what should progressives do about it? We did everything right in 2016. We did everything they told us to do in terms of holding our nose and voting in, in 2020. And it hasn't made a lick of difference to the democratic establishment. So I think it's really fair to say, let's see what we, we tried working with carrots. Let's see what happens if we work with sticks and what happens if we are willing to withhold our vote or vote for the people's party and organize around the idea that our votes can be earned, but certainly aren't, uh, they certainly aren't entitled to them. I think that that is when you're going to see um, a great deal more um, engagement, sincere political engagement with the most marginalized communities in America, which, to your point, are truly instrumental to the Democratic Party's survival. Yeah, and I think just real simply, like you can't vote blue no matter who gives these corporatists no incentive to actually change. Correct. If you're telling them that you're just going to vote for them, like they'll be like, great, I can just keep working for my corporate donors and keep, you know, uh, spouting platitudes on CNN and, and, you know, getting, you know, building a coalition full of platitudes and working for my corporate donors. Meanwhile, people at the margins who are the, are the ones who are suffering the, the, the consequences of this kind of reckless government that's happening. And again, when the Republicans are very clear about who they are and what they stand for, I disagree with everything pretty much that the Republicans stand for. But what I don't disagree with is that they actually fight for their agenda. Yep. They actually fight for their base. And so what happens is if you can tell a story to the electorate and you have and you're loud and you fight unapologetically, what we've seen in America is we just keep marching to the right. And then you have the Democrats. They provide no counter narrative to that. Correct. They are not providing a narrative for the working class. They're not providing uh, a real economic agenda for the working class. They're they're just basically kind of running in the, this kind of milk toast neoliberal politics, this kind of squishy center that doesn't really stand for anything except you know spout platitudes and govern for corporate America. And and that's why I think if we don't hold the Democratic Party accountable, that we are just going to continue to be stuck in this vicious cycle that kind of goes from, you know, this neoliberal corporate extremism uh, to this kind of, you know, you know, far right neo-fascism every four to eight years. And this cycle will just keep continuing until the people wake up and realize that like, we have to vote for a government that will actually represent the people's interests and not these corporate interests. And I think if that requires us to organize outside of these parties, and that is why I got involved with the people's party in my head, I'm like, shoot, even if just the three, it, because right now, the Democratic Party can take the left for granted and can take progressives for granted because we really don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. You know, the Green Party has tried for yeah. three decades now, and I applaud all of their hard efforts, yeah. but they haven't really been able to kind of pierce through the duopoly. And so when when the left really doesn't have anywhere to go, the, the corporate Democrats can just kind of, you know, keep going right and keep governing for the center right. Uh, because there's no real threat. And so if we had somewhere to go, and if there was a party that was challenging them, 
it would actually also force the Democrats to actually earn people's votes and be better. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, one one of the main critiques that comes from the anti-force the vote left is that, you know, yeah, it would be nice to do this and that. Oh, yeah, it would be nice to withhold one's vote, but we don't have an organization that we could um, belong to that could credibly corral our votes and, and, and deliver them or not deliver them, right? Who can credibly, you know, um, structure that kind of an effort. And at the same time, those very interlocutors tend to ignore the People's Party. You don't yep. really hear those people talking about it. If they do, they tend to do so dismissively. They have that same um, presumption that, oh, this isn't going to work. And my feeling is that if you see a, an, an effort or an organization, an activist effort that you think is flawed, that you think could be improved as most things in the world can be, how about you get involved and you lend your expertise to it and you help to make it better and you fight for it? Because if you have identified that a lack of organization on the left is part of the problem, but you spend all your time simply sounding like you're a big brain smart person by pointing that obvious fact out instead of doing something about it, at a certain point you have to acknowledge that you're part of the problem instead of being part of the solution. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I have any expertise or know-how, but it has become very apparent to me in the two brief years that I have been in politics that pointing to the need for organization has become a way to thwart energy in some parts of the left. A way to say, well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm not pushing for more or doing anything. The left just needs to get organized. We need to have more organized labor. We need to. Ha we can't have a general strike unless we have more organized labor. Well, what's the path to getting there? What's yeah. your plan to getting there? If you're not saying that, then I think I suggest that you just not put anything out there negative in the ether that is detracting people who have the energy and the spirit to go out and try to make the world a little bit better. And understand that building infrastructure takes time. Yeah. I mean, the reason the DNC and the RNC have so much power is because they've been building these institutions for the last century. You know, we just started building power uh, outside of, of the corporate parties, and we're just starting to build this infrastructure with the People's Party, yeah. and it, it takes time to do. But you're absolutely right. Let's build the infrastructure, lend your expertise, get involved, instead of saying, well, the left doesn't have any infrastructure. Well, that's why we're building it. Right. You know, that's why we're actually trying to develop it. Uh, I just looked at the clock and I, you were, <laughs> this was such an insightful conversation <laughs> that I just totally got carried away with time. But uh, I, I prepared a few kind of rapid fire questions sure. for you uh, just to kind of wrap up our year, just kind of year end questions. And I want to get your thoughts on those um, real quick. Uh, what's your proudest moment of this year? Oh, of this year, of all of 2020, huh? Um, oh, this is a little embarrassing because it feels like I don't want to be, you know, self-aggrandizing or, but you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of pressure to take a certain path in politics and to, um, make choices. You know, there's a lot of financial pressures that everybody feels and I don't really judge people for feeling constrained in those ways. Um, there are professional pressures that would have you not do or say certain things because of the implications for your career. And I will say that, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't always do so consciously, but I made decisions this year to kind of say and do what I believed in, even if it meant that it closed certain doors and, you know, who knows what this is going to mean for me down the line, but I will say it's been a very rewarding experience to not have to 
curb myself in this moment and to even have more freedom than I did in the context of the Bernie campaign. And whatever happens, I don't have any regrets about that. Hmm. What's your biggest regret this year? Hmm. I, I wish, um, you know, who knows what would have happened, but I do think I, I wish I could, would have agitated perhaps a little bit more in the context of the campaign um, to do more of these kinds of stunts that we're talking about, to have a somewhat more aggressive message on corruption, to name names and, um, you know, try to pressure to make the campaign a little bit more explicit about what our opposition um, was doing and what they stood for. And I don't, you know, who knows what would have worked or whether or not people in the campaign would have listened or been receptive to that. There's a part of me that wished, wishes I had left like more on the field. No, I, I, I'm loving all of this because I think for so long, you know, there's, there's just been this kind of attitude in the Democratic Party and even in, with progressives that, you know, in order to win that we have to compromise our values. Yeah. No, no, no. Make no mistake. If you want to win, yeah. you have to fight for your values. Yeah. And especially if you want to win an agenda for the people. Yeah. You know, you have to it, you have to fight for what you believe in. And so I'm hearing a lot of, of that from you. And it just... And that kind of that kind of moral courage that it takes to fight for what you believe in, like you've said in this podcast, it is hard to keep putting yourself out there. You know, it is hard to keep making yourself vulnerable. But I think that's what people need to see because it's contagious. And that's the kind of movement power we need if we're ever going to break through this corporate duopoly and we're ever going to break up, you know, this this corrupt government that continues to just work for the 1% and not work for the rest of us. So I applaud that, uh, that courage. I think that's so important right now. We need that fire. Well, right back at you, Ryan, um, you're like balm to the soul. I'll tell you, it's, it's so nice oh. to have this conversation and to know you're out there uh, in the fight next to me. So thank you for everything that you do. Absolutely. Um, what's the biggest progressive victory of the year? We talk a lot about, you know, it was a bad year for progressives. Let's put some sunshine on it. What was the yeah. biggest pro progressive victory this year? Well, progressives did well, especially as a comparative measure uh, uh, in Dow ballot races. Um, we had like record numbers of socialists being elected across the country. We had, we obviously doubled the squad. Um, there was a media attempt to cast the losses in the House as the consequence of progressive movements. But I was actually really impressed with the solidarity across progressive media outlets and pushing back, I think, very effectively against that messaging. It is yep. amazing what we can accomplish when we stand together and have coordinated, accurate, effective messaging. Um, I think we shouldn't undersell the extent to which Medicare for All is peaking in popularity. Part of it is because we're at the tail end of a primary campaign where it was foregrounded. Part of it was because this COVID pandemic has spotlighted the, vulnerabil spotlighted the vulnerabilities in our system. Regardless, you know, that is cause for celebration. You don't win every legislative battle or electoral battle, but to the point many people were making online, you know, there was a vote on the, the you know, women's suffrage amendment a year before that failed, that failed colossally a year before it passed, but the failure galvanized people around the movement in a way that was enough to put it over the edge just a year later. Um, and so I think that having, you know, the, the kind of floor uh, a high floor in terms of support from the community and support from voters to to bounce off of, to springboard forward onto is really important. And we're, we're at a real um, inflection point, as uh, our future vice president likes to say. And I, I think we're poised to really exploit it for the best. Hmm. 
What's the most important lesson that leftists have to learn this year? Hmm. I know a lot of people would say to stop infighting, but I think that I think there's something, you know, I think it shouldn't be personalized the way that it has been, but I think there's something really constructive about having the conversation. And, you know, if anything, I think it's almost, you know, amplified the energy around this to have people who, you know, I waded into this kind of casually and have become like a fierce advocate for it because of all of the pushback. So, you know, you know, I, I appreciate that energy and I appreciate the people who have been giving good faith pushback because it has helped us to hone our ideas and to add to it, right? David Sirota's suggestions about the other things we can ask for and including in, including a floor vote are really meaningful and important and the yeah. kind of stuff we would hope that wonks and experts like David can bring to the table. Um, so the thing I think that we do need to learn is to, I think, have more confidence in our ability to use our platforms for change as opposed to being um, places to remark upon how hard change is. And you, yep. you can be realistic and pragmatic and clear-eyed about what the obstacles are in your way without becoming an obstacle yourself. Very well said. Who is your person or people of the year? You know, it's it's hard to ignore, you know, that 315,000 Americans have died from COVID. Um, it's hard to ignore that 15, 000, uh, 15 million people are, are have been kicked off of their in, employment insurance, employer-based insurance. It's hard to ignore these food lines with thousands of people in them. Um, you know, before the crisis, there were 500,000 homeless people in America. I shudder to think about how many exist today, and we're heading into the darkest days, well, I guess... Te technically yesterday was the darkest day of winter, but figuratively some of the darkest days of winter. Um, Eight million people have fallen into poverty just this year. Eight million more people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know it maybe sounds a little trekkily and like, you know, to, to say that, but it's, it's hard, you know, from a place of relative privilege to be sitting around saying that some elected official or, you know, even as much as I love Bernie, you know, anybody like that kind of pales in comparison to the, the kind of millions of in, relatively invisible struggles that are going on every day. And I think mm -hmm. next year, some of those names will come to light. Some of some, there will be spotlights on some of the people who um, are being heroes every day in myriad ways. Healthcare workers, mm -hmm. um, first responders, the people who have continued to collect garbage and, and maintain essential services, run our electricity, all of those things who, who couldn't take a day off or work from, from home or podcasts from your, from your bedroom. So, yeah. Uh, who is your villain of the year? <laughs> Nancy Pelosi. No. Barack Obama. No. <laughs> well, um, you know, Hey, the, I mean, <laughs> they, they, they're definitely on the naughty list. Those names are on the naughty list. No doubt. Yeah. Santa, you keep going. <laughs> Don't pass. You keep flying right past their house. It's a, it's a tough competition. It's a tough competition. You know, I, I might have to give it to a media figure. Like I might have to give it to MSNBC <laughs> and, and all of the people, you know, not everybody on MSNBC is terrible. I think Ali Velshi um, was very sympathetic toward Medicare for all as a Canadian. He it was just a commonsensical kind of fella. Um, yep. you know, I'm, I don't mean to condemn every person who's ever come gone through the network. Crystal ball is a oh. real ally and, you know, but, uh, on the whole, no, I think MSNBC is a very good answer. I think, <laughs> I think that, I think that they're the way they covered the primary race, the way it was like, 
all the candidates who were fighting against the status quo and fighting for the working class and the poor and communities of color, candidates like Bernie Sanders, they were automatically framed on that network. I would turn it on and I would just see, oh, oh, it's divisive. Yep. Yeah. Fighting for everyone in this country to have health care. No, that's not divisive. That's righteous. Right. You know, it was the way they framed that. And then a candidate like an Amy Klobuchar or a Pete Buttigieg right. or a Joe Biden who is not running on, they, they weren't running on any bold policies. They weren't running on any policies that would would combat the, the, these massive levels of inequality that we're seeing in this country. But the MSNBC anchors would frame these candidates as decent and compassionate, right. you know, and dignified. And that just framing, the way they would frame the corporatists in a positive light and frame the progressives who are fighting for real change in a negative light, I think that did more damage to the Democratic primary than honestly anything else, than next to Barack Obama's phone call. I agree. So I, I think they are the villain of the year. Yeah. Well, what's the most important thing that you learned about yourself in 2020? Um, you know, like I said, I'm relatively new to politics and I am accordingly pretty humble about, you know, my ideas. I like to test them with other people with more experience. I regularly DM and text people like Ryan Grimm and David Sirota and and people who worked on the campaign and say, is this right? Like, what's the thinking here? Um, I've tried to reach out to movement leaders, like what's possible, how pragmatic is this, you know, but I think over the course of this year, I think I've learned to trust my instincts a little bit more. Uh, I think I, I was willing, I was maybe overly willing to defer to the expertise of other people because I thought it was like grounded in actual expertise and knowledge. And sometimes it is, uh, I don't want to take this too far, but sometimes it isn't. And over the course of the conversations I've had with people about the movements over the summer and you know, what could have been done or maybe people could have tried things differently. It has been revealed to me that in some instances, things just weren't tried. It wasn't that they vetted an idea and decided it was bad. It was that no one really talked about that option or opportunity. And so right now I'm trying to learn what it means to be an organizer, learn how to be, be an activist. I have nothing else. I'm a professional podcaster now. So I, I, I feel like I, if the, if the complaint about this idea and about me is going to be that it's all posturing and bluster and performativity, well then fine, I'll do the thing. I'll, I'll do the activism. I'll do, I'll do the work as it said, and we'll see how successful I'm able to be. But, um, I am, I feel, I'm feeling more confident about trying and, um, you know, there's a, there's a dearth of leaders and I think more people should feel more confident in fighting for their values and figuring out how to organize their communities. You know, what does that mean? Organize your community. Everybody says that. Okay. Well, maybe you start a Facebook page or a Slack group or join your DSA group or join the people's party or door knock. Well, you know, COVID COVID compliantly door knock in your neighborhood and, and, you know, organize your workplace, you know, figure it out. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do over on Bad Faith Podcast, right? We're trying to get people on who can give us practical advice about what the average person who's sitting in their dorm room or their living room or their office place um, or, you know, what they can do practically in this moment. Um, because I think everyone's well, well aware of what their limitations are. We don't need to be told what yeah. we can't do. We need to be told how to collectivize our individual power. And finally, because this is the holidays, and despite all of this suffering going on in our country right now, I think it is more important than ever to find a little bit of joy 
where wherever you can find it. So joy, so joy. Where do you find joy in your life? Uh, what keeps you going in times like these? Oh man. Well, I really enjoy television. <laughs> I like a good binge. Um, you know, I've been largely alone, uh, alone, like living by myself in DC since the campaign ended. I came back to New York, um, quarantined a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving and have been at home in like my family quarantine pod ever since. And I'm going back after, um, after Christmas, but it has been nice to feel like I have some support, um, and not just like me and my Twitter in a room <laughs> in DC for months <laughs> on end trying to figure out life. So I, I am grateful for the support of my family. And I'm also really grateful for the support of my online left community, people like you, like I would feel, I think very overwhelmed if I felt like I was a voice alone and I never feel that way. I never hmm. feel actually alone. I, people complain about Twitter a lot, but I feel so much solidarity and love and support from the online left community. Some of whom I was lucky enough to meet in the course of working for this campaign and traveling around the country and some who I just feel like I've met because we've been in the trenches together for so long. And, um, I, if any of them are listening, I, I want to thank them um, for keeping the faith because it, it helps me to to do the same and to play it forward. Yeah. And I just want to echo that you I feel the solidarity as well. I'll, I'll never forget that, you know, when I made what is a very democratic decision after Iowa to leave the Warren campaign and endorse Bernie Sanders because I felt like he had the best chance uh, to bring the progressive change that we desperately need in this country. I was attacked and bombarded by everyone in the Warren campaign, yeah. even though I left in such a respectful way. And you were so, you were, you like were so kind to me. And you, of course, you invited me on to the Bernie podcast and we had a great conversation. But more than that, you would just, you know, when you start getting attacked from people for just kind of, you know, all I was doing is fighting for what I believe in and realizing that like, you know, Warren wasn't standing behind her convictions on Medicare for all. And, you know, I, I saw after Iowa that like Warren didn't have a path. And so I endorsed Bernie and it was like, it was like, I was the worst person in the world. You know, people were saying the meanest things yeah, to me for just doing what was my right and my democratic yeah, right. It and was you very were brave. so kind you were kind and you just, you made me realize that like, you know, it's, there is solidarity on the left and, and what we're fighting for is just, and it's, and it's righteous and it's important, um, to stand in solidarity with other people in this movement, uh, while we continue because the fights are going to continue. Um, and so I just want you to know, I'm very grateful for, for you. And, you know, I, I know you take a lot of incoming heat and, and I have as well, and you've always been had my back. I, you know, the, the blue check, uh, the blue check, what are they? The blue check neolib neoliberal celebrities loved to come at me because I was asking for concessions from Biden during the general. Yeah, and they did. I think I got attacked by like five of them in one week. It, they must've been in a private DM group. A hundred percent. You had my back and you were always kind and I always have your back. And I just, you know, thank you for fighting for what you believe in for, and for standing up for your convictions. I think that more than anything in this moment, when there is so much injustice and so much inequality, I think it's so important for this country to have people who are going to be strong and steadfast and, and stand against the, you know, against the corrupt establishment and do it with dignity and do it because we're fighting 
for everyone in this country to have a better life. And uh, that's what you do. And I think that's what this movement is about. So I just want to thank you for taking almost two hours <laughs> to ra uh, wrap up this year and, and to end uh, and end our podcast on a, on a strong note for 2020. And I look forward to more conversations with you in 2021. Same here, Ryan. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Brianna. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brianna. And before we go, I just want to remind you that we are now producing two bonus videos a week for all of our Patreon subscribers who support the podcast on Patreon. If you want to become a, a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash amped up. And for as little as $5 a month, you will have access to two bonus videos per week. One of them is our new weekly wrap-up show where my producer Rob and I break down the most important issues of the week. And also, I want to thank our benefactors, uh, people who give $20 a month and more to the podcast. I want to thank John Lippman. I want to thank Sarah Aziz. I want to thank Tiffany Mahmood, Eric Peterson, John Paul DeLuca, Jean-Michael DiPardo, Susan Sarandon, DJ Comatos, The Movement for a People's Party, Patty Cleary, Elizabeth Kim, and Frank Lloyd. Thank you so much for your generous contributions. And I want to thank all of you for listening to the podcast and sharing the podcast with your family and friends and for uh, being a part of the Amped Up family. I wish everyone a very happy holidays and we will see catch you in the new year with an all new episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight. <laughs>